0: All right, so let's take our Bibles now and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, we're going to look at the entirety of the chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 742. At 742, I've entitled today's message, The Death of a Superpower. And as always, we'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text. Let's pray now. Our Lord, we are so grateful to gather once more on a Sunday morning to worship as a church family. Thank you for the gift of your word and for the opportunity we now have to consider a portion of its contents. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the flow of this chapter and to understand the major themes that arise from it and help us to make application of it to our lives. We pray that our own perspective about life might be shaped according to the lessons of this text. And Lord, this being Memorial Day weekend, I also want to give you my thanks for the many who have answered the call to serve our armed forces. Lord, we thank you for their sacrifices This weekend, we remember those who paid the ultimate price, Lord, they gave their own lives in order to preserve freedom for their families, for their neighbors, for their fellow countrymen, and in many cases, Lord, even dying for the freedom of other nations. Lord, we thank you so much for them. We are indeed a privileged people, privileged to have heroes like that living among us And having died for us, privileged to enjoy freedom of worship, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. Lord, we thank you for these great gifts. And Lord, would you also be with those many members of our church family traveling this weekend as they visit with loved ones during this extended weekend? Lord, would you use this time to refresh their spirits and then bring them back to us safe and sound next week. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we are in Daniel chapter 5. Seventy years have now passed since Daniel chapter 1. And about 25 years have passed since Daniel chapter 4. Daniel the man is now in his 80s. King Nebuchadnezzar has passed off the scene. And now one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons, a man named named Belshazzar, is ruling in Babylon. We don't have a lot of information about Belshazzar, but what we do know suggests that he was every bit as debauched as his father. Belshazzar was a liar, a thief. A murderer, a drunk, a lecher, a tyrant, and much more. But his rule would not last long because the entire Babylonian empire was about to come crashing down. And Daniel chapter 5 tells that story. So let's look at this chapter together and let's ask the question, what brought this superpower down? Turning to verse 1, we find our first answer. It was brought down by folly. It was brought down by folly. Listen as I read the verse. It says, And King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, there's nothing particularly unusual about an ancient king holding a grand feast for his lords. Okay, Alexander the Great once hosted a feast for ten thousand of his leading citizens. I think the uh, record goes to Asher ben II, though, who hosted a feast for 70,000 of his leading citizens. So nothing unusual about the feast in itself, but there was a major difference here in that Alexander the Great and Asher ben II and a host of others were giving these grand feasts when their kingdoms were stable. But not so with King Belshazzar. He was holding his feast on the eve of his empire's complete destruction. You see, things had not been going well for the Babylonian Empire for some time now. Uh, The Medes and the Persians had been gaining power just outside of Babylon's borders, and they had begun a series of military campaigns that was shrinking Babylon smaller and smaller. In fact, only a few days before Belshazzar's feast, The empire had suffered yet another crushing defeat, leaving nothing left of the empire except their capital city. The Medes and the Persians simply could not penetrate those 40-foot walls. So as Belshazzar is holding this feast, there is literally nothing left except the city that he is partying in. If Belshazzar had any wisdom at all, he would have been in his war room in these moments, meeting with his generals, trying to plot strategy to get themselves out of this mess. Instead, he's just throwing this great feast. He's using up precious resources of food. They're going to need that food for what is to come. He's acting like nothing is happening beyond his city walls. And this was just par for the course for King Belshazzar. He never took his responsibilities seriously. His empire was crumbling because of folly. But then as we look at verses 2 through 4, we find another culprit. It was also coming down because of sacrilege. Look at verse 2. It says, Now Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, okay, he's at this great party, wine is being served, it says, Now when he tasted the wine, and, and you understand the word tasted here, it's just a really nice way of saying he got himself plastered on wine. So Belshazzar, when he got plastered, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lord's His wives and his concubines might drink from them. So many decades prior, you'll recall, King Nebuchadnezzar, the father of Belshazzar, had rolled the Babylonian war machine into Israel. And they had conquered its capital city, Jerusalem. And King Nebuchadnezzar had also sent his troops into the holiest place in Judaism, the temple itself. And he had raided the contents of that temple, had taken all of the sacred vessels, the the chalices, the, the, the table for the showbread, all of the items used in their worship of God. But from the time that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen these items until this moment with Belshazzar, all of those sacred vessels had been kept in storage. You see, even Nebuchadnezzar knew that you don't abuse sacred objects. So he was willing to capture them so he could have bragging rights. Look how my gods are stronger than the God of the Jews. I've stolen their worship items. But Nebuchadnezzar knew you don't mess with those kinds of things. You don't want to invite divine judgment on yourself. But Belshazzar was different. Belshazzar, in this drunken state, remembered those sacred vessels which his father had put into storage. And he thinks to himself, wouldn't it be fun if we brought those out for a party? Let's drink our wine with the sacred vessels of the temple. And so that's what he does. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says... Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, just reinforcing the sacredness of these objects. In Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And then, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only did did Belshazzar and all of his thousand lords and all of their wives and all of their sexual slaves have this great big drunken orgiastic party, but then they bring out the sacred vessels. They get more drunk on all of those things. And then at the end of the party, they all hold up the vessels and toast their false gods, the, the gods made of wood and metal. Now, friends, in the Old Testament scriptures, we occasionally find this phrase, their sins had reached the limit. For example, we find it in the early books of the Bible, after God rescues the Jewish people from their slavery in Egypt, and he starts marching them toward the promised land. Remember, that promised land was the land of the Canaanites. But God said that the sins of the Canaanites had reached their limit. They had grown so wicked, so evil, that God was saying they had forfeited their right to occupy that land. And so God was wiping them off of that land, and he was now giving it to the Jewish people, freshly rescued from slavery. Well, friends, this sacrilegious act at Belshazzar's party, this was Babylon's final sin. Their sins had now reached the limit. Why did Babylon fall? Well, folly brought them down, but also sacrilege. And that takes us now to the third point. ultimately, we see, the empire was brought down by an act of God. It was an act of God's judgment on a people whose sins had reached their limit. They could become no more evil than they were. In fact, let's look at verses 5 through 9 now. It says here, And immediately, that is, while they are toasting their false gods, right in that moment, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, Opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So, picture in your mind's eye this great banquet hall. King Belshazzar is on an elevated platform. He's sitting on his throne, gives him a good view of all the revelers. But then, at the far end of the banquet room, there is a wall, and the wall is uh, white. The ESV here says it was a, a plaster wall. Um, More accurately, it was was a wall rubbed with gypsum, so just a beautiful white surface. And as all of these revelers are getting drunk and toasting their false gods, they, they look across to the back wall, and they see this ghostly hand appear. And with the fingers of the hand, there is lettering, being burned into the gypsum wall. Verse 6, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So that, that face, which was a moment ago bright red from inebriation, now it has just gone white as a ghost. He sees this. He can't make sense of it. He is... Petrified, And he loses all the strength of his body. His knees are shaking together. This man is going into full-blown panic mode. And then verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Quote, "...whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." just as his father had done before. When God manifests himself to the king and communicates a message to him, it leads to panic and to the thought, I've got to get my advisors in here. Nebuchadnezzar did it. Decades and decades earlier, and now his son, Belshazzar, does it. Bring them in. Bring the enchanters, the music, the, uh, the magicians. Bring in the palm readers, the crystal ball gazers. Anybody who might be able to tell me what this wording says. Verses 8 and 9, they come in. It says, All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed again, and his lords were perplexed. You know, isn't that the way it works with human philosophy and false religion? When times are really good, these things seem useful. But the moment you are in a crisis where life and death are on the line, when you are stricken with panic and you're looking for answers and you want to figure out what to do, you find that the philosophies of men and of false religions have nothing to offer you. Their philosophy is empty. The worldview is bankrupt. There are no answers to be found there. And so once more, the the wisdom of, Of Babylon has been proven to be folly. And so that leads to verses 10 through 12. It says, Now the queen, probably referring to the queen mother, okay, Belshazzar's mom, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, that's her son, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit... Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So the handwriting is on the wall. Nobody can figure it out. All of the wisest men in Babylon have been proven ignorant. They don't know anything, they can't help. But then Belshazzar's mom remembers that there is a man in the kingdom called Daniel and he might be able to help. Now remember, at this point, Daniel is in his 80s. Uh, He has not been a part of the inner circle in Babylon for quite some time. He probably faded away when, when Nebuchadnezzar died. And now he's just living out old age, away from the limelight, but Belshazzar's mother remembers him because she remembers when he helped her husband. And so she says to Belshazzar, there is this man, he's very old now, we're going to have to track him down, but he's still somewhere in the capital city, and he he was able to help your father. Maybe he can help you. And so, they go out, they search for Daniel, and they bring him in. The picture that comes to my mind is of this great banquet of all of the rich and famous people of Babylon. They're all well-dressed, but they're also just drunk as skunks. But then in comes Daniel. White flowing beard, probably walking with a cane at this point. Very modest clothing, very simple. And he walks in and the room just gets pin quiet. This old, wise man. Some of them may have remembered him from the past. Others would be too young. Who is this guy, they wonder. But in Daniel comes. Verse 16 King Belshazzar says the following, I have heard, Daniel, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me it's a... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel, we've got a problem here. I hear you're a man that can solve such problems. And if you can solve this one, we will just cover you in riches, in honor. I'll make you third in command of the whole empire, which at this point you'll recall was just one city. But you can be third in charge of the whole empire. Well, Daniel responds, verse 17, he says before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. He says, Belshazzar, I don't want anything from you. I don't want your clothes. I don't want your gold. I don't want your, your power. It's meaningless to me. But, he goes on, he says, I will read the writing to the king. And make known to him the interpretation. Look, I don't want anything to do with Babylon and its culture. But I am a prophet of God. And if God wrote this message on your wall, I can give you the interpretation. But he says first, Belshazzar, I'd like to give you a history lesson. And here's what he says in the verses to follow. He says, Belshazzar, let me tell you about your father, Nebuchadnezzar. It says, your father was a narcissist. This was a man swallowed up in sinful pride. But God brought him low. God unhinged his mind. For seven long years, your father lived like an animal in his own kingdom. But then God restored him to his throne, gave him his right mind back. God brought him low. But then he says to Belshazzar, But you know, as bad as your father was, you are even worse. He says to Belshazzar, Your father came to believe in God at the end of his life. God brought him low and he came to embrace his creaturely state. At the end of Nebuchadnezzar's days, he witnessed to the glory and the power of the God of heaven. He called all people of, in the Babylonian Empire to embrace the true and living God. He says, but, but Belshazzar, you have persisted in your pride. Even though you were there when all this happened to your dad. You saw God bring him low. You saw him live like an animal for seven years. You saw him come back to his right senses and then praise God. You saw what a changed man he was. And none of it had any impact on you at all. You didn't bow before God like your father did. You've continued on in your sinful pride. Then Daniel shifts gears and he says, Now that I've given you the history lesson and I've told you what I think of you, Let's talk about what God says on that wall. Verse 25 of the chapter, we finally learn what was written there on the wall. Four words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And then the meaning of the words, mene. The God who numbers all of our days has determined that your kingdom, Belshazzar, is over. Indeed, his kingdom would end that very night. Teko, the God of perfect holiness has seen your moral character, Belshazzar, and you have been found wanting. You are corrupt to the very core. And then Perez, just a, another um, form of parson. It means your kingdom will be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. See, friends, God had raised up the Babylonian Empire 70 years prior for a specific purpose. God was using Babylon to chastise his own covenant nation, Israel. They had descended into every form of debauchery themselves. The Israelites were worshiping false gods, sacrificing their own children to those gods. They were engaged in every form of evil. And God, to get their attention, had raised up the Babylonians, allow them to march through Israel, lay waste to the nation, send the Israelites into captivity, to teach. Teach them to be faithful to their covenants. Well, that lesson got through to the Israelites. And you know, never again, from the end of the Babylonian captivity right on through to today, the Jewish people have never, ever worshipped idols. Never again they learned that lesson. But now that the lesson was learned, God was declaring that his use for the Babylonian empire was over, and their sins had reached the limit. This empire was intellectually, morally, spiritually bankrupt, and now it was time for it to come to an end. And so now we look at the results of Daniel's words, verse 29, Daniel was honored. It says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Kind of surprising. Words of judgment, but Belshazzar honored his promise. Perhaps it was because the promise was made in front of a thousand lords, plus their wives and concubines. Perhaps it was because Belshazzar believed Daniel. He gave Daniel these uh, Great marks of honor and promoted Daniel to third in charge of the whole empire, which meant third in charge of that one city. Of course, even this would be a short-lived honor because just a few hours from this moment, the Babylonian capital city would be utterly demolished. There would be nothing left of Babylon. That takes us to verses 30 and 31. It says, That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, Daniel does not share with us any details about how the Medo-Persian empire was able to conquer the capital city. But the ancient historians Herodotus and Xenophon do give us the story. And here's what they tell us. They tell us that the capital city of Babylon fell while its leading citizens were holding a great drunken feast. Isn't that interesting how that corroborates with the book of Daniel? According to Xenophon, that's why the Persians chose that particular night to invade. They knew that the king and all of the leading citizens would be in a drunk, drunken stupor. What better time for them to invade and take over? It would be easy on that night. And here's how they did it. Now, I already mentioned the Medo-Persian army could not penetrate the wall of the capital city because of that 40-foot wall, uh, because it was 40 feet went all the way around the city. So here's what they did. They went underneath the wall in an amazing engineering feat. So the capital city received its water from the Euphrates River. And the river went right underneath the wall and into the city. That's how how it was supplied with water. So what the Medo-Persian army did was they... Constructed this massive channel which diverted the Euphrates River away from the capital and into a marshland. And that lowered the water level of the Euphrates River. It left a gap between the bottom of the wall and then the top of the river. Just enough for soldiers to be able to breathe. So, with that, uh, with that gap in place... Uh, the Medo-Persian army marched through the Euphrates River underneath the wall, and they came up the other side, and then they overtook the capital city. That's how they did it. And that was the end of the Babylonian Empire. It fell in October of 539 B.C., the very night of the drunken feast and the handwriting on the wall. Now, friends, what lessons are there to be learned from this story? Well, I think the first lesson is obvious. That God is sovereign over world affairs. God is sovereign over world affairs. Now, in our pride, we can sometimes think that we are the sovereigns. That we are the masters of our own fates. Just like Nebuchadnezzar thought, or just like Belshazzar thought. That's how we can think. But the truth is that only God is supreme over all the affairs of men. for as God created this physical universe with the breath of his mouth. And according to Colossians chapter 2, God upholds this universe by the word of his power. Were God to withdraw himself for one nanosecond, the whole universe would split apart at the molecular level. That is how much control God exerts over his creation. It is utterly and totally dependent upon Him for life and continuance. God also has an eternal plan which encompasses all of nature and all of history. God's plans are always efficacious, meaning that nothing can prevent God from accomplishing His plans. After all, He is the omnipotent One. God's plans are also comprehensive, meaning that they cover every dimension of world affairs from the events of of the natural order to the decisions of men. When a nation rises, that is God's doing. When a nation falls, that is also God's doing. When a man rises or falls, this is God's doing. God is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of the world, and He is also a God of absolute authority, which means what God commands, all people are required to heed. Friends, in light of all of this, we should not live our lives as if we are the sovereigns. You know, James speaks of this in the New Testament. He writes in, in his letter, "Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will hear there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring." And then James asks, "What is your life?" And he answers, "Your life is a vapor, a mist." that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's who we are. So in light of that, how should we live? Well, James says, so instead of being puffed up with pride, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, friends, in light of the absolute, complete sovereignty and lordship of God over all things, the only appropriate response, the only uh, appropriate perspective on life for us is to say, yes, I am the creature, you're the creator, I will live under your lordship. I will accept your will. I will submit my plans to your plans. I will make my, my future plans, but I will recognize that in your providence things could change and I will be okay with those changes. The right way to live for us is to joyfully, willfully, gladly submit ourselves to the king of heaven and earth. But then secondly, we who love the doctrine of God's sovereignty should also find relief for our anxieties here. To know that no matter how bad or chaotic things seem to get out there, there is always a God of order and goodness, a God with an eternal plan who is up there. That should relieve many of our anxieties. I think Daniel is a perfect illustration of how this works. Remember, as a young man, Daniel was kidnapped from Israel. He was shipped off to Babylon against his will. Then he was subjected to a three-year training program by King Nebuchadnezzar, finally put into service in the king's palace. And he spent 70 years of his life in Babylon. Multiple times his life was threatened in Babylon. And yet, as we read his biography, we never find uh, moaning and crying and pleas for mercy. And what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. I'm going to die. None of this, no, no expressions of outrage at the injustices committed against him. Instead, we find a man, we find a man who is calm and confident and brave and who takes it to the leaders of this foreign empire. He is a man of confidence because he knows that above all of the fray, there is a God above, and he knows this God, and this God knows him, and this helps him to walk with courage in life. Friends, this is how we're called to live too, men and women alike, to face down the chaos and the, the evil with firm and courageous resolve. And not to fear what's going to happen to us, because we already know what's going to happen to us. To be absent from the body is to be present with the God who bought us. But then that takes us to a second lesson. We see the sovereignty of God in today's text, but we also see God's moral resolve. The scriptures speak to this from cover to cover. Isaiah 6 declares, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Psalm 97 verse 2 says clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Revelation 15 verse 3 says great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So God is not just the all-powerful sovereign, but he is also the God of absolute moral goodness. And he established his universe to be a moral universe. And in this universe, he is resolved to bring every evil act to judgment and to establish his righteousness over all in his good time. And friends, that truth should bring us all to faith and repentance. Because the scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. And we know that a God who is morally resolved will carry out his sentence. Yet John 3.16 reminds us that there is a provision which God has made to deliver us from death. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, should not pay the wage of sin, but have everlasting life. See, it behooves us all to see God in His absolute power, sovereignty, and holiness, to see His moral resolve, and then to come to Him in faith and repentance. That means confessing all the ways that our own pride has manifest, confessing the ways that we've tried to be our own sovereigns rather than letting God to be sovereign, looking at all the ways that we have turned to idols rather than the true and living God and to come under His lordship, Confessing, repenting, believing in Him and in the provision He made for us through Christ. Indeed, friends, this, this lesson should lead our whole nation into faith and repentance. Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Proverbs fourteen thirty four says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach on any people. My friends, our nation is steeped, just steeped in evil today. Did you read the headlines from the past week? Murder and theft and greed, immorality of every sort. And this is daily life in modern America. There is a need for national confession, a national turning from this national faith in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then finally, friends, and turning to a more positive note, the final lesson from this chapter is that God is faithful. He is faithful both to his people and to his promises. Look how he's been faithful to Daniel. Despite it all, God never left or forsaked Daniel God never leaves or forsakes any of His people. Though our times may be difficult, though we may face many trials, God will always be there. Within us, His Spirit ministering to ours, surrounding us, because He is the ever-present God. And above us, managing human affairs. He's faithful to His people. He's also faithful to keep His Word You know, there are several places in the Old Testament Scriptures where God prophesied to Israel the rise of the Babylonian Empire. He said, look, every generation, you guys get worse and worse and worse. I'm going to bring chastisement to you as a nation. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise up a foreign empire, Babylonian Empire. And he said, I'm going to use them to teach you about faithfulness, but then I'm going to cause that empire to collapse. I'll restore you to your homeland you will learn the lesson. God was faithful to these promises. Listen to this prophecy of Isaiah 21, verse 9. It says, And behold, he's talking about Babylon here. Behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs, and he's answered, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has scattered to the ground. That prophecy uttered before the Babylonian Empire had taken over, already promising its destruction. Or consider this one, uh, Jeremiah 51. It says, I will prepare them a feast, talking about Babylon, I will prepare them a feast and make them drunk, that they may become merry, then sleep a perpetual sleep, and not awake declares the Lord. How similar that prophecy sounds to Daniel. Then, of course, who can forget the vision that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, the former king of Babylon, at the start of the book of Daniel. Do you remember the vision God gave Nebuchadnezzar of that great colossus with the head of gold? And, and Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, that head of gold is your empire. But then what came next? Chest of silver. Daniel said, that means your empire, though the most glorious of all, it's going to end. It'll be replaced by an empire less beautiful, less ostentatious, but more militarily strong than you. It'll take over. That was the Medo-Persian empire. Now God is bringing that to pass, My friends, this should give all of us hope that no matter how dark times seem to get, we know that God is always there. He is always sovereign. He is a morally resolute God, that He will right every wrong in His time and in His way. I wrote this in my newsletter this week. Perhaps you saw it. I said, quote, If world history can be compared to an epic story, we are presently working through the darkest chapters the chapters that cause the reader to wonder whether there is any hope for a happy ending at all. But the happy ending will come. Sin will be vanquished. The devil will be imprisoned. Death will die. And we with him. That's how the story ends. Friends, never forget this truth that the whole world is in his hands. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you for Daniel chapter 5, for the lessons that it teaches us about your sovereignty, your moral resolve, your faithfulness to your people and to your promises. And help us, Lord, to live each day with a big vision of you, the kind of vision that helps us to stand straight and tall in the face of evil and chaos and to stand as men, to be courageous, to speak the truth and to wait for the fullness of time when you will make all things as they should be. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.